0: So, Acts 17. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of god-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. but the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting. These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, thank you very much to Tilly for reading for us this evening. Uh, Good evening. It's really great to see you. Thank you for your stories of uh, your summer, whether you were here, uh, whether you were away. It's really great to have uh, heard a little bit about what you've been up to, and I hope you've had a really uh, great summer wherever you were. Uh, As usual, I guess for a great many of us, the summer seems to have flown past even more quickly than the wind-blown rain clouds that seem to have accompanied most of the UK summer. I hope you really enjoyed the last week of sunshine, if you have been able to enjoy that over the bank holiday weekend. Uh, I guess if you're like me, actually the early months of the summer, June, July, that type of time, now just seem to be a distant memory as we look forward to the autumn term. Uh, It was back at the beginning of the summer that we heard these words from our TV screens. Our future as an open, tolerant and united country is at stake. We're kidding ourselves if we think we yet live in a tolerant, liberal society. This is a historic time in British politics actually not an age ago, however long ago the 14th of June sounds. These were the words when Tim Farron stood up uh, to announce his resignation following the general election. When I mention the words general election now, it probably seems like a million years ago. June the 14th was when Tim Farron said this. He went on... The consequence of the focus on my faith is that I have found myself torn between living as a faithful Christian and serving as a political leader. To be a political leader, especially of a progressive liberal liberal party in 2017, and to live as a committed Christian to hold faithfully to the Bible's teaching has felt impossible for me. This evening we're uh, opening our new sermon series into the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're thinking about a church, a new church, living faithfully under fire. Uh, We're going to be looking at that, and I wonder if even at this stage you're thinking to yourself, well, what has all of that faith under fire, what has all of that got to do with us? Uh, We know that uh, Christians are persecuted often for their faith around the world. Uh, But Christians don't seem particularly persecuted in the UK. You might be aware of Open Doors. It's a a charity that monitors and encourages and supports the persecuted church. It's based in Whitney uh, in the UK, one of its uh, worldwide offices. It doesn't look as if Open Doors is going to be adding the UK to its worldwide watch list at any point particularly soon. So why a sermon on faith Under fire. Tim Farron's comments might give us a little pause for thought. The UK might not be quite as liberal and tolerant, perhaps, as some of us would like to think, and we'll be uh, encountering that a little bit as we look through this passage this evening. There was certainly a huge social media storm questioning after Tim's resignation, questioning whether it would be correct to say that he'd been persecuted by the media for his faith. And so it might be that as 21st century Christians in a church that's well established, we have something that we can learn and be encouraged by, by this first century church that's only just been established. We're going to look at four things as we look through this passage this evening, Uh, We're going to look at the context of the persecution, we'll have a look at the causes of that persecution, we'll have a quick think about the consequences, and then we'll have a think about some of the Bible's counsel in that persecution with an aim to setting up this series for the term ahead. So firstly, uh, the context of persecution. First century Thessalonica was a really proud place. Uh, You'll see there in chapter 17, verse 1, that uh, Paul had reached it by uh, going across from Philippi, right at the top left-hand corner of the map at the top here. From Philippi to uh, Thessalonica, only looks like a little arrow, it's about 100 miles. uh, And that was broken up, if you had a horse, into convenient 30-mile or so staging posts. And so we encounter in verse 1 uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia, which were those staging posts on the way to the city of Philippi. Uh, It was on the Ignatian Way, which was sort of the M4, if you like, of the ancient world, running from uh, east to west. Uh, It was slightly more important uh, in the world, probably slightly less crowded by traffic on bank holiday weekends. Uh, But it was a particularly significant trade route running from the east to the west. Uh, Thessalonica found itself... uh, Uh, benefiting from its geography. It was on a river. It was also uh, an important seaport as well. And so I guess a modern-day equivalent would be something like London or Bristol. To the north of Thessalonica, trade routes went up to the Danube and therefore uh, into the rest of modern-day Europe, Uh, and then from the east uh, via that Ignatian Way over into Turkey and modern-day Asia. And with 200,000 citizens, Thessalonica, even by ancient standards, was a a bustling place i'm not sure whether that's a word uh, a bustling place that's probably the word i was looking for a bustling city to be in and it was a proud city uh, it was proud of uh, its economic prowess it was fueled by all those trade routes those international relations and partnerships it was pow- proud not just of its economic prowess but its political prowess as well it had a particularly cozy relationship special relationship with the worldwide superpower, and particularly with its celebrity leader, Caesar. It was Caesar who had granted Thessalonica free city status within the Roman Empire in 42 BC. And it wasn't just proud of its economic links, its political links, it was proud of its liberal cosmopolitan values as well. You can see if you look down and just skim your eyes over uh, Acts 17... Uh, We read that there was a Jewish community there, there was a Gentile-Greek community there, Uh, there were particularly liberated attitudes for the ancient world towards the role of women within society. Thessalonica was an economically successful, politically astute, liberal powerhouse with worldwide connections and particularly close relations to the countries that mattered around the world. It liked to think of itself as somewhat of a power broker. There is a lot that resonates between 1st century Thessalonica and 21st century Britain. And one of the surprising resonances, perhaps, as we're going to unpack a little bit, is opposition to the Christian faith, albeit different in the case of the Thessalonian church, but we're going to try to understand something that we can learn from it today as well. The causes of that opposition are outlined for us in verses 1 to 4, particularly you might like to take a look at them uh, with me. Cause number one of this opposition to the Christian faith that had only just started in Thessalonica is that Paul was preaching revolutionary good news. Uh, if you were here for Paul's sermon this morning, not first century Paul, uh, Paul, Paul, uh, here this morning, uh, you'll have been hearing from Mark one one about the gospel. Paul's gospel was... Revolutionary because it was a direct challenge to other good news stories that were circulating at the first century. The religious Jews in Thessalonica thought that the good news lay within me. They thought that the good news lay within me, keeping the rules as best I could, living in the expectant hope that God would be pleased with my rule-keeping when he sent his king to save me. The non-Jewish Gentiles thought that the good news lay primarily in Caesar, who they increasingly worshipped during this period as God. They thought that the super-powerful leader would bring peace and prosperity and stability by a mixture of their own particular brand of celebrity leadership and military might, that was overwhelming. But Paul's Gospel didn't centre on super powerful celebrity Caesar. It centred on Jesus Christ, a supposed criminal who Caesar had executed. But now Paul was saying, had raised from the dead, declaring that he is God. Paul's gospel didn't centre on me doing enough in myself to please God. It centred on Jesus Christ as God, dying and suffering in my place, because my good is not good enough for a holy God's perfect standards. And Paul took the Old Testament there in verse 3 and showed that the prophecies of the Old Testament were realized and fulfilled in Jesus. Here's what verse 3 says. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you, Paul says, is the Christ. In other words, this Jesus that we've seen is that which was prophesied. It was revolutionary talk. It was also, if you notice verse 4, effective talk. Some Jews uh, believed, a number of God-fearing Greeks, and a few prominent women. In fact, enough people believed, verse 5, that it aroused the jealousy of the Jewish believers. Causes of persecution? Well, the first cause is that Paul's good news, his gospel, was revolutionary in the context of the day, and the second uh, cause of persecution is that good news isn't just revolutionary, it's effective. I wonder when uh, you talk to your friends, perhaps to your uh, family, uh, when we look at our uh, media, when we listen to our politicians, I wonder what we think good news is defined as today. Perhaps, like uh, Thessalonica, uh, the good news might centre today on uh, folk who would say, well, it's all about me being good. If essentially I'm a good person and I try my very best, that's good enough. And that's good news because for a lot of people, they would say that they feel that they might not be perfect, but they're on the right side of the equation. Perhaps people might say in a a modern era that uh, good news uh, centres on uh, good, sound political leadership. Celebrity leadership, accompanied by overwhelming force, stands the likelihood of bringing peace and prosperity. Other people might say that in today's post-truth society, the good news is actually that there aren't any rules at all. There's no such thing as good and bad, and there aren't any consequences anyway. Uh, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, I can, I can do what I want to do, and that's good news, because I can live however I want to live. I can live me. And all of that is absolutely fine with no consequences. And in contexts like these, if that's how our society is defining good news, you can see how the good news of Jesus is revolutionary. Saying that God exists, and that therefore right and wrong exist, and that therefore right and wrong matter, and there are consequences. Saying that whilst I can do good, I'm also capable of doing bad, and that that is not something that a holy God can sweep under the carpet. Saying that although I can't be good enough, God loves me so much that he sent Jesus to suffer and to die for my own shortcomings. Saying that Jesus rose again, which proves that God is there, loves and is truthful. Saying all of those things is to be, in some senses of the word, a revolutionary. When I uh, look around the UK... In many ways, I find very little opposition to the church and to the Christian faith. Uh, I find that there's very little opposition when I look at the church's provision of food banks, most of which are run from churches in the UK. We have one great example run by some of our congregation here. I find that there's very little opposition to youth work. We employ Chris and Fiona here. 75% of the nation's youth work and children's workers, Leslie, are employed by the church. I find very little opposition to the church doing that. I find very little opposition to great debt counselling services like Christians Against Poverty uh, or to street pastors quietly helping a really quite stretched police force I don't find that there's much opposition to the churches in Oxford doing amazing work helping out the homeless community when the council can no longer afford to keep homeless shelters in the centre of town open. But I have noticed that sometimes when the actions of God's love, which are of enormous value and witness, when the actions of God's love are also accompanied by the declaration of God's existence and God's truth that sometimes the presentation of the church is not always quite so positive. Perhaps we're seen more as a threat, and perhaps there might be some more opposition and so I think it's worth, worth us thinking, if that's the context and perhaps some of the causes of opposition, what are the consequences? The consequences uh, in uh, Thessalonica were fairly clear and fairly immediate. Verse 5 following uh, gives us, an indication of exactly what happened. We'll see that there's a jealousy there, and that jealousy led to an, an ugly mixture, uh, as is often the case, of mob violence against the Christian community there in Thessalonica. Uh, an increasingly kind of frenzied activity to identify the leaders and then to drag them before the courts. And we'll see in verse six, uh, there's a bit of a shouting match of a courtroom scene as the accusations. Uh, uh, stray some way uh, from the truth in verse 7. Uh, you might have thought that there's a rather a degree of common material here between Paul's suffering in Thessalonica and Jesus' suffering before his death. In this particular case, it doesn't result in Paul and Silas's death. We'll see in verse 10 uh, that the believers encourage them to leave town, and so Paul and Silas continue their journey onwards. And sat here, I was praying uh, before the service. Sat here this evening, it's great to be able to meet in a country which allows us to meet together in freedom. And we were remembering in our service beforehand the persecuted church around the world. Uh, It's certainly true, we said earlier, that open doors isn't going to put the UK on its watch list at any time soon. Uh, If you speak to somebody like Jill Island, if you uh, visit the Open Doors uh, website, you'll certainly see that persecution around the world of this type is certainly alive and kicking. But I wonder if there is a sense in which, closer to home, Tim Farron might say that there are certain similarities between what we see here and how he was treated uh, pursued, uh, increasingly frenzied endeavours to uh, to corner him, uh, perhaps less than fair trial before the court of public opinion with media cameras in his face. I wonder if, in a very different context, but perhaps in your situation, whether you can remember in your own experience perhaps... Uh, perhaps a a business deal or something like that, I can certainly remember a a particular experience where I was aware that my articulation of Christian values at one particular point had lost the deal. Uh, I wonder if uh, there are similar situations of, if not persecution, then opposition that can spring to your mind as well. And if that is the case albeit in a very different context to Thessalonica, I wonder what we might learn from the letter to the Thessalonians as to how we might uh, deal with opposition where we encounter it. What we're going to do now is just have a very quick flyover some bits of uh, uh, counsel from that letter, and then in the coming weeks we'll take a chance to unpack them more fully. Let's just do that very quickly. Firstly, in opposition... Uh, as and when it comes up. Let's remember that God is with us. It's both God's Spirit who leads us into situations where we might encounter a little bit of opposition, and it's God's Spirit who's with us, guiding us through it. Uh, Acts chapter 16, uh, verses 6 to 10, if you just flick back, makes that clear to us. It was God's Spirit who really clearly guided Paul to Macedonia. He had this dream A man from Macedonia said, come over to us. God's Spirit led Paul and Silas both into this situation. He doesn't abandon them at the port side in Neapolis, but he goes with them as they go on their way. God leads us and he's with us. We sang in our first song this evening, you go before us, you're there beside us, you're our guardian. And so Jesus told his followers that we should expect in certain circumstances to be opposed. He also said that he would be with us to the very end of the age and that we should expect in our mission for him to be fruitful. And that's exactly what happens here. Secondly, in opposition, let's remember that the testimony of the worldwide church, China would be a great example in the very modern era, The testimony of the worldwide church is that where God's church is opposed, it's even more fruitful and grows even more quickly. Uh, We sang in one of our other songs this evening, uh, the greater the storm, the louder our song. Uh, And that's exactly what happens here. Uh, If you look at the letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 8 says this, the Lord's message rang out from you Thessalonian Christians, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, which was the region that Thessalonica was in, but your faith has become known everywhere. It's exactly, interestingly, what happened to Tim Farron. Ironically, the papers that had chased him were the papers that published often glowing reports of his resignation. The Sun contained the full transcript of his resignation speech. It's the website that I copied down the details from. Ironically, the thing that Tim Farron is probably most quoted for in the press, has been given most column inches for in the press, is his resignation statement. Where the Church is opposed... It is often most fruitful. Thirdly, let's remember that uh, if we experience opposition, that we've got a Christian family around us. You can look around just this evening and see Christian brothers and sisters around us who are encouraging us and praying for us. And that's really apparent in uh, 1 Thessalonians, uh, and we'll see that later on with the ministry of Timothy as he goes over to encourage the church. In our context uh, today, it's uh, apparent, and I've mentioned the work of Open Doors, if you're wanting to know how you can pray for the persecuted church, if you're wanting to know how you can support them financially, if you're wanting to know how you can write to political leaders in countries on their behalf, there are a whole load of practical resources just waiting for your welcome on the web. You can log on to it even this evening and can get praying for the church around the world. Fourthly, in persecution, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 gives us some uh, helpful advice, and we've got it on the screen uh, up there. Firstly, Paul advises the Thessalonians to exercise brotherly love, or oh, sorry, uh, firstly to, to live in order to please God. In other words, live distinctive lives. Part of being distinctive is loving one another, exercise brotherly love. So radical and so distinctive. The church is, I think, probably the only body in the UK where, if we look around the room this evening, uh, brings together in one place... In one body, in one family, people of different ages, people of different ethnicities, socioeconomic backgrounds, political opinions, nationalities, everybody together in one place. As we love one another as God's body, we have an enormous uh, witness uh, in our world around. Live distinctively, uh, love one another Lead a quiet life, Paul says. Mind your own business and work with your hands. There's a temptation perhaps to think that a gospel which is revolutionary needs a kind of behavior which is revolutionary. Let's just remember that Paul, with his revolutionary gospel, also commanded Christians or advised Christians to submit to the God. Appointed powers and authorities. And so Paul advises the Thessalonian church to lead a quiet life, to mind their own business, and to work with their hands. We've seen the context uh, of opposition, a context that's very different from our own in many ways, but has lots of similarities. Uh, We've uh, seen the causes of opposition, revolutionary good news. That is effective. Uh, We've seen some of the consequences of opposition. Finally, Paul's last bit of counsel to the church is to focus not just on the here and now where they might be opposed, but to look forward to the future that they have in Jesus. A hope that is never going to perish, or spoil, or fade. A hope that will invade the present, however opposed it might be, that will invade the present with a joyfulness and a thankfulness. Here's how Paul ends his letter to the Thessalonians. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. And as I say these words now, it might be that you'd like to keep your eyes open. It might be that you uh, there's a specific circumstance for you where you feel perhaps that your Christian faith brings you into uh, some opposition uh, with those around you. It might be that uh, for you that is is not something that comes to mind, but actually you can think of a country that God particularly and regularly puts on your heart around the world where you know that that might be the case. So I pray these words now, let's just... Uh, hold those situations in our hearts may God himself the God of all peace sanctify you through and through may your whole spirit soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ the one who calls you is faithful